Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. Big show, David. Episode uh, 52. Two-parter. It's a two-parter. Okay. It's an intentional two-parter. Intentional. Yes. So here's the thing. I know that I shouldn't talk down to our listeners, but here's what I'm going to say. This is 52A. All right. We will clearly state when it's 52B. So you may wonder like, well, why? It's like this episode seemed kind of haphazard. They ended really abruptly. Okay. It's a two-part episode. All right. So there's 52A. I think you are talking down to the... Whatever. You know what? Looking at our numbers... Uh, was it 43? 43B got listened to way more than 43A. And uh, and so, you know what, listeners? You kind of brought it on yourselves. That said, welcome uh, any new listeners we got from uh, the IMDb. We were mentioned a couple of times uh, this past week. But, uh, yeah, wh- why is this a big episode? Well, it's episode 52. And we do one a week. And we do one a week. Anyone so hang on knows now. anything about calendars <laughs> <laughs> knows there's 52 weeks in a year. This is our one year anniversary. Now who's talking down to the listener? Now who's being naive? Well, I was Kay. talking down to you. Whatever. Well, that's true. Mathematically, I'm uh, not that smart. <laughs> but uh, but yes. Yeah, so this is our one year anniversary. Very exciting. Um, so uh, well, we'll get to what we're gonna what we're gonna talk about in just a moment. First things first, David. Yeah. Uh, you you kind of teased something uh, last week. Well, people got to have a reason to turn in. Tune in. Yeah, <laughs> turn in. It's we do kind of give him re- <laughs> exactly. We kind of <laughs> do give him a reason to do that. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, so uh, yeah, you commented that my arch nemesis, dream world adversary, my dream world adversary is uh, Michael Gambon, famed British actor. Um, so here's here's the story behind that. Uh, it's not David just being extremely absurd. Uh, there is. Some logic behind it. Many years ago, I <laughs> I had a dream where I was a camp counselor, uh, quite possibly the worst camp counselor in the world. Here's why. So I'm taking these kids uh, on a hike through the woods, and it is the woods from Sleepy Hollow. Very frightening, very intimidating, uh, very cloudy, gray Blue day. Blue filter on everything? Blue filter on everything. Uh, you know, trees are all dead, leaves on the ground. So anyway, so I'm taking these kids. They've all got yellow shirts on. That's how I know it's a camp. Um, so I'm leading them. They're all like probably six or seven years old. So I lead them to a very large... How long ago did you have this dream? Did you say probably that? Probably four years ago because it was when you and I lived together. Because the next day I'm like... It David, seems like it was longer than that. It might have been more. It might have been five, six years ago. Yeah. Either way, uh, so I lead the kids to a very large tree. All right. You could call it a redwood uh, because uh, it was big enough to house a living room. All right. There is a door on it. Uh, Here's the here's the comparison I make. If you grew up reading the Berenstein Bears, okay, their house, the living room, you know, it's it's inside a tree. Okay, and it's got a TV. It's got, you know, couches. So we open the front door to the tree and there's this living room. And where are the Berenstein Bears? They're not there. They're not there. They don't They're make out. an appearance. Just okay. their house, you know. Um, we decide to sleep in their beds, and they get all angry. Anyway, but um, <laughs> that's a Goldilocks joke, everybody. But uh, once again, talking down <laughs> to the listeners. Whatever. I'm a little sleepy, so um, <laughs> I get really patronizing when I don't yeah. get my nap. Um, anyway, so uh, so I decide, hey kids, since we're in the Sleepy Hollow Forest. 
let's all watch Sleepy Hollow. That's why I'm a bad camp counselor because I decide yeah. this this uh, be, this beheading movie uh, is is appropriate for seven year olds. So we watch it on the uh, on the TV and the uh, Berenstein, that, Bears, the Berenstein tube. Bears tube. <laughs> and so um, and then then I'm like, hey kids, guess what? We've got a special guest from the movie. And they're like, oh, my gosh. And I'm like, please welcome Michael Gambon. And so he comes in, and the kids are all really happy to see him. But then a weird thing happens. Michael Gambon starts making fun of me in front of all the kids. Like, I don't re- honestly, I don't remember anything that he said. I think he was making fun of my appearance or the way that I walked or just some weird thing. But he was doing it to the kids, you know, like. Like it was a roast and nobody told me. Um, and so the kids are all laughing at me. Michael Gambon is laughing at me. And so I'm like, I don't need this. And so I storm out of the tree. And so I'm walking along and, and I'm walking along in a dry, in a dried up creek. Okay. Uh-huh. And so David, have you ever had a moment in, in dreams where you are, you're yourself, but then all of a sudden you are looking at yourself. You sure. are out. Okay. So it goes from, I'm me to I'm looking at me. Okay. Uh And, and so I see myself clench a fist and grit my teeth. And in a very, in a very deep whisper, I literally, I'm not joking. This is what I say. You'll get yours Gambon. (laughs) All right. So that's, that's my, I woke up. Laughing hysterically because <laughs> how redi- – first off, I've never in my life said you'll get yours to anybody because that's ridiculous. But just the idea that in my dream – oh, gambit. And so, uh, so yeah. So that is why he is my uh, dream world adversary. So All right. So that's my, all, that's my dream, everybody. We're all caught up in that story. So <laughs> now we can reference it freely. Exactly. For the next 52 episodes. Exactly. You better have a wacky dream, though, before episode 104. I'll do my best. Um, so. Okay. So, this is a two-parter. Yep. Uh, the, the last time we did a two-parter, it was unintentional. Yep. Uh, it was because we did our top 10 movies of 2007. Correct. So... Our intentional two-parter is yeah. again a top ten, and these yeah. are this is this is it, folks. Yeah, you are you are seeing the uh, the the cobweb-riddled uh, corners of our brains. All right, these are our top ten favorite movies of all time. Top ten of all time. Top but ten favorites. Favorite. That should yes. that needs. These are not necessarily the movies that even we think are the top ten best movies of all time. Correct. These yes. are just the ten movies. That mean the most to us. Yes. Um, you know, we figured episode 52, special occasion, let's let them in a little bit. Let's let's stop keeping the listeners at arm's length, David. Let's, you know, let's start treating them like people. Okay. Like friends. Okay. Because after a year, you know what? I like to think that these are not listeners anymore. They're friends. Okay. Uh, yeah, right. you, I mean, you can have them over to your house. I do like I do like entertaining. Um <laughs> But uh, okay, entertainer that song from I do I do enjoy (laughs) it. Yeah, good song. Um, But uh, all right, so we're gonna start. So fifty two A, we're gonna talk about number ten, numbers ten through six, and then fifty two B, of course, five through one. All right, okay. Who should go first? Uh, you know what? Let's go with you. Okay, that makes sense. Actually, yes, it does. Uh, Because we're recording this on Saturday. That's right. Fifteenth yesterday, Friday the fourteenth. Yep. Saw the uh, theatrical release of Funny Games. Yes. 
The remake. The remake of Funny Games. Now, we have talked about Funny Games before, David. Yeah, uh, you and I in person? or, or on, on the podcast. On the, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course we have. Uh, I think that'll probably happen a lot, actually. Uh, more than likely. Next, I'm, I uh, feel like hours. a lot of the movies that that we will be bringing up for the next couple hours, uh, we've referenced before. It's just going to happen. Well, they're our favorite movies. Absolutely. So, so yes, so. Um, my number 10 favorite movie of all time is the original uh, the 1997 right. uh, Funny Games. Let me put the brakes on for a second, though, because I want to talk about something. Because this is the most... Oh, <laughs> this is the most recent... Sorry. This is the most recent film on my list. Okay. And it's 11 years old. Yeah. And um, I had considered... I'm not sure if I'll say what, but I had considered putting a more recent film on the list. Yeah. But I decided that a film has to be... at least Maybe not particularly... A certain amount old, but there has to have been a certain amount of time has passed since I've seen it for me to uh, to put it on my favorites list. Right. Because the movie that I was honestly thinking about putting on there mm-hmm. uh, was 2006's Korean film The Host. Right. The monster movie. Yeah. Because I love that movie. It um, is a good movie. I adore it. I saw it twice in the theater. I bought the DVD. I've watched it a couple times since then. Um. Uh, but yeah, that, that's that, that was just a, a criteria. That, did you find yourself? Uh, like, well, the th- thing is, you keep a list. I do keep a list. I I have a top hundred list. You can find it on uh, my MySpace page as well as uh, the Battleship Pretension MySpace page. Um, and there are yes, in my top hundred, there are several movies that have come out in the last few years. Um, but you know what is in the top in the top ten. My most recent, 1997. Yeah. So, it seems like that's the right amount of time. Yeah. Um, uh, and as okay. far as my top 20, I think the most recent is 2000. So at that point, at this point, it's, you know, that's eight years old. Yeah. So that's crazy. Okay, so I just wanted to say that. Um, yeah. Back to funny games. Let's discuss it. All right. Uh, it's a film that a lot of perfectly intelligent people have yeah. perfectly good reasons for hating. Yeah. Um, because its whole... Its whole its whole theme its whole thesis yeah uh, is to it is it's it's designed to punish its audience right it's that's the only reason it exists is to be mean to the people who are watching it and you know it's it's odd that uh, Michael Haneke has has commented about funny games and he has said that when if you go to the theater to see it if you stay in the theater you need to see the movie. If you don't stay in the in the theater, like if you sit through the movie, you need to sit through the movie because you know it has kind of a message for you. But if you get if you're grossed out, and you're like I I don't want to I can't watch this. I've had enough. And you leave the theater, then uh, good. Then you don't need to see the movie. And that's an odd. And so I'm trying to think what he would think of it being in your top ten, David. Yeah, I, I, yeah, he would actually probably look down on me. But the thing yeah. is, I. Uh, I, I'm considering myself to be on par with Michael Haneke here. Yes, what I'm doing. Absolutely. I'm saying, no, Haneke, it's okay. I get it. I like, get I'm, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on this. Right, right. Uh, for those who don't know about the film at all, I, 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 I don't know if I should say much about it because I don't want to spoil it for people who might be seeing it this weekend. Or Right, right. Because, yeah. the, I mean, the remake, it's shot for shot. I mean, Haneke made, he wrote and directed the remake, so it's not going to veer off too much from the original yeah it is a shot for shot location for location yeah yeah uh 
uh, remake. It's just in English. It's more. I've said this before. It's more. It looks like it's more of a translation than a remake. Uh, yeah. And yeah. I like the idea that maybe in another ten years they'll make it in Spanish and then like they'll <laughs> <laughs> make it in Farsi and <laughs> Cantonese. Uh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, it is. It is a movie that's you know. If you talk about what you, you know, it's one of those rare movies that to even discuss why you like it so much is to kind of ruin it for people. Yeah. I mean, because it it starts off a certain way and to comment that you like when it goes a different way, you ruined it. Right. And so, like, even me being broad right there, like, I feel like I've messed it up a little bit for people. But uh, how, how can we discuss this movie, David? Uh, I don't. I don't know that. I mean, we got a lot of movies to get to. I don't. We don't That's have true. to spend too much time on it. Okay, fair uh, enough. But it's. Uh, I don't know. E- yeah, email me if you after you see it if you haven't here's, seen it. Here's what we'll say. We will. We will say it is. It is. It's a comment on cinematic violence. Sure. That kind of. Um, you know, kind of takes the audience to task. For their complicity in it. For wanting to see a movie like Funny Games. For wanting to see a movie like Funny Games. And especially, you know, and it's a very relevant movie now, you know, in the days of what people have called torture porn. Yeah. Where, you know, really just chamber dramas where people are physically and mentally brutalized by, you know, a tormentor. And so it's like... Yeah. So... And those movies do very well. It also seems like... Like making it in English, it's all, is almost like it's true home because making it yeah. in German for a German audience, yeah, it, the main type of movie or the main country yeah. that it's attacking is is America's film, right. film industry, and the only people that would see it are people who probably are sympathetic to his viewpoint, and so well, I, I'm sure they they watch American movies in in Germany. I suppose, I guess. Well, so I mean. They're not just watching the lives of others on a on a loop for the past two years. <laughs> you know what? I kind of think they are. Um, but uh, oh, I kid the German film industry because it you do a, make fun of it quite a bit. Yeah, because it, with the exception of you know Werner Herzog and uh, yeah. Volker Schlondorf, who's I always mess up that guy's name, it hasn't been a, a presence on the international film stage since the silent era. Hmm. I don't know that Lenny Riefenstahl was pretty good. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I'm not even necessarily making a joke there, um, though some would say that I that I am. So yeah, I mean, we don't want to ruin it. It is an amazing film, um, and, and we uh, gotta keep the show going. And we gotta keep the show going. So yeah, just go see Funny Games. It's really amazing. So and it is unforgettable. You, I have not. I haven't seen the remake yet. Uh, no, neither have I. Okay. So. Um, yeah, when I say go see Funny Games, I mean go rent the original, the new one, or see the new one. You yeah, know what? it seems like they're pretty <laughs> Do what you got to do. All right, we really need to move on. Okay. What's your number 10? My number 10 is Robert Altman's Nashville. I've seen that. Yes, yes. I've it's... seen all the movies on the list. Right. I'm not yes. going to do that for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, uh, but loyal listeners know that I actually, uh, Nashville is, because uh, uh, I had talked maybe a couple months ago now at this mm-hmm. point about the fact that I hadn't seen Nashville. Right. So... Well, listeners know that my saying I've seen Nashville means I've seen it fairly recently. Yes. Um, you know, and we won't we won't try and pull, pull this one over on you. But, you know, we did see some of the, the movies on each other's list in preparation for this episode because we, we didn't we wanted it to, you know, both of us to have seen the movies. Um, and so Nashville, uh, I have talked about in the past movies that are. There's so much going on that I just can't, I can't get a, 
a firm grip on it. I can only get a little bit here and there, but it's so much bigger than me, and it's so much bigger than the actors and the director. There just seems to be so much going on that it's like, this is, that like, I just, I love it, and I just have such a response to it, but I just, I'm at a loss to actually explain, quote-unquote, what it's about. There's movies like There Will Be Blood, um, Citizen Kane, Apocalypse Now, Vertigo. There's a handful of movies that just, I can't help loving them, even though I don't 100% know what they're saying. I can only get a little bit at a time, but it may, whatever I may say, it could change in five years, you know? Yeah. Like, I feel like it's a movie that it changes as I change. Nashville is very much one of those. I mean, every time I've seen it probably four times now, every time I see it, I either see something new or I feel something different about it. Now, David, you've seen it recently. What, what has your response been to it? Well, uh, I, I I like it a lot, yeah. uh, and I you know, I don't want to uh, turn this into a like a an argument here, but I'm not quite the Altman fan that you are, yeah, and I'm right. not quite the Nashville fan that you are either. Right. I I like it a lot, mm-hmm. but it is here. Here's my problem with it, <clears throat> and we talked about this recently. Yeah. Um, or here's one of my problems. Uh, the Robert Altman of the 1970s. Um, what year was that? Seventy five. Seventy five. Uh, he's he's a little bit of a he's he's a he's a he's brash. He's even though he's at that point not a young man. No, I'd say he's he's what in forties. Uh, I'd say yeah. Uh, but he seems to have the mindset of a young man. Yeah, and therefore young men in his films, I think, tend to get off a little too easy. Hmm. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of Nash, which I've talked about in the podcast before. I do, did I say Nash? You said Nash, yes. I, I, got, I have some allergies. I'm kind of having trouble wrapping my uh, teeth around my tongue to form some words. <laughs> um, what an odd phrase. Okay, go on. I'm painting a picture of the inside <laughs> of my mouth. Um, it is pretty attractive, yes. <laughs> Mash, which I, I don't really like at all. Uh those two main characters, Hawkeye and, and Trapper. Yeah. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're, I, I can't stand them. And mm. the movie doesn't, doesn't condemn them. Condemn, it seems to glorify them. Yeah. And I kind of had that problem with Keith Carradine's character yeah. in Nashville. Even though any rational-minded person, and I'm sure even Robert Altman would, could look at that movie and say that that is not a nice person. Yeah. Uh, but he gets off the easiest, I think. He's there, there's a there's a certain kind of uh, he, he's not only in the fact that he looks like him, he's kind of like Sawyer on Lost. <laughs> like he's just this this cool guy that you know is bad news, but he uh, his swagger and his presence are always at the forefront more so than the horrible things that are there are about his character. Well, and I and and it's odd because and this is, you know, the movie is kind of a, a litmus test for for people because I uh like I like when I think of that character specifically, I think of a, a just an inherently negative character, but at the same time, there are plenty of characters in that movie who are somewhat hypocritical. Like they you know, they try to present themselves as being very righteous, very good people, uh-huh. but underneath 
they're just as rotten as anybody else. Where and whereas Keith Carradine, he's just going to be who he's going to be. That's all yeah. you know. Like Sawyer. Like Sawyer, exactly. <laughs> you know, and he is pulling cons to a degree um, on the ladies, um, but uh, but yeah, um, and yeah. I mean, you could, but that's the thing is like I view him as a as a negative character, and I feel like the movie does as well. So you know, I I think it's a function of interpretation. A lot of people. You know, the Onion has commented that that uh, Nashville is just uh, just uh, uh, oh, it's just cynical and self righteous. I'm like, well, hang. It's like, okay, there is that. There's almost every emotion in Nashville. You know, yeah. you can't latch on to. You know, some would say that it's optimistic, and it's like, well, it's not 100 percent optimistic. You know, there it yeah. has moments of optimism. It has moments of cynicism. It's got. It's just a. You know. With a movie as big uh, as that is, you're going to kind of run the gamut of emotions. Um, but I still see some of the... Uh, okay, from a craft standpoint, Altman is amazing and should always be celebrated for that. Of course. You know, I mean, that movie's two hours and 40 minutes long and it feels shorter than yeah. uh, a lot of movies that are shorter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's 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 very well... It's a, it's a very well-told story. Uh, but... His opinions about his characters are different than the ones that I have, mm. uh, and so I, like I talked about the Keith Carradine thing, but I would like Henry Gibson in that yeah. movie, who's possibly my favorite character in the movie. Okay, the movie spends a lot of time making fun of him. Yeah, uh, and there's a lot of things about that character to make fun of. Absolutely, and he doesn't, and he gets at the, at the very end. Uh, we we can spoil these movies, right? This movie's it's it's pretty old at this point. <laughs> okay. I think it's fine. Uh, when there's the shooting and uh, what's her name is shot Barbara Jean. Uh, that's the character's name, yeah. yeah. Um, and then he's shot as well. He, he gets yeah, hit he gets in the shot arm. in the arm. And his immediate reaction is to keep the audience from freaking out. His- well, he first says, "He says I'm fine." Just everyone keeps asking, Are, uh, "Can we help you?" He's like, "I'm fine. Get her away." Right. And then he worries he about the, to audience. the audience. Yeah. And so for all his. I mean, he's a big blowhard. He's yeah. mean to people who are underneath him, <laughs> which is which is quite it really saying something considering he's such a small guy, right? <laughs> um, but you you see his uh, there's something there there's something redeemable about his yeah his uh, uh, populist vein, right? You know the the how much he really does care about the people who buy his records and, right. and listen to his music and come to see him in concert, yeah. And to get back to my point, though, it, it just – it seems like the balance is off in mm. the way that the character is presented. There's too much making fun of him. Uh, it, it's, it seems like he, he's a more interesting character than Altman presents him to, to us as. See, and I feel like it's similar with the character of uh, Suline Gay, who there – are, there are several characters that the movie just says – Okay, we'll we'll wrap this up and move yeah. on. Um, sorry, we just looked at the time, everybody, as I'm sure you are. Um, and so uh, there are several characters in the movie that are presented and held up for ridicule. But Altman, he will spend probably about 80% of the time, you know, for the of the amount of time that that character is on screen, it will show that person as ridiculous. Uh-huh. But then he will show you know then 20 percent of the time or i guess in henry gibson's instance probably five percent of the time right. he will give you a glimpse of like 
It's like like he gets you thinking one way so much, and then he'll be like, "Hang on, there's more to it," you know. And I I think that yeah. that is the right balance because it's funny though that that turns me off. That sort yeah. of uh, postmodern playing with the audience thing turns me off when <laughs> I just talked about funny games being <laughs> one of my favorite films of all time. Um, you know, I mean, I I tend to like I like complex characters, um, but and I especially like it when when they will have a character who you think is one way, but then in a completely organic way, right. you see them, you see them as, Oh, it's not quite what I thought. And I like it when a character is all positive and then it turns out they're negative as well. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, I tend to like that even well, if you only see a glimpse of it. Like I, like I said, we should move on, but I, yeah. I, I want, I don't want to give the impression. I don't like this film. I'm kind of playing devil's advocate a little, and right, just right. pointing out the things, the few things that I don't like about it. It is a great film. And speaking of Suleen Gay, her striptease is like top five saddest scenes ever committed to film. Uh, I'd say that's about right, and, and that's and that's the thing is you know there's another instance where it spent she cannot sing she really can't right. and the actress was she took singing lessons to sing as well as she does in the movie <laughs> which is fascinating to me but uh, but she and so you really are meant to just pity her and look down on her and laugh at her but then that moment comes along and David has commented to me that. That scene goes on so long that it it really makes you uncomfortable, and I contend that you are supposed to be like. Yeah, it is... no, I, I I didn't say that as a detraction. Of the oh, film. okay. I mean, I think that it's absolutely necessary yeah. that it goes on that long because it's almost like okay, you want to make fun of her? Well, take this. Yeah. What do you think of that? And so I, I tend to like that kind of thing. But we'll move on. Nashville. Number nine. I really like it. Number nine. Number nine for David is, uh, and I'm surprised this isn't on your list, but I think it's it's, it's number, number 11. eleven on your yes. and top one hundred. Uh, Carol reads the third man. The third man. Um. Now, let's. I'm going to stop for a second okay. and uh, say we talked last week when we talked. We were talking about the Oscars about um, genre films being overlooked. Yeah, I've got at least looking at my uh, looking at my at my 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 top ten list. I've got at least three, maybe four genre type films on there. I do too, although three of them are all from the same genre, so never mind. <laughs> and The Third Man is essentially a, a genre movie. It's, yeah. it's, it's a mystery. It's a thriller. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's – I don't know what it is about the movie. that It's, 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 it's held in higher esteem than uh, – genre gets a bad rap. It's, yeah. I, it, that's one of the like creeds of my life is like yeah. <laughs> defending genre filmmaking because yeah. uh, it has always gotten a bad rap and uh th- this film even among those types of people it, it doesn't get lumped in with that it, it's, right. it's elevated and rightly so uh no one should be able to no no one could ignore the brilliant beauty of this film yeah i mean it's it's memorable in every way from the wha- when i say wacky i don't literally mean you know, wacky like freaking Rocket Man with Harlan Williams. Where did that come from? But, um, but like, uh, it's just it's such an unusual score. Even now, I mean, I can't imagine people listening to the score at the time and just forgetting it easily. I mean, just yeah. it's gorgeous to look at. It's gorgeous to listen to. It's very well acted, very well written. It's just a wonderful film. Go on, David. Sorry. Well, yeah, let's talk about this score because that is one of the most memorable uh, yeah. things. That and the Cuckoo Clock speech, which we'll get to next. Oh, absolutely. Those are the two, probably the two most memorable things is the score uh, and the speech. Um, it's what, What's the name of the instrument that's used? Zither? The zither, that's right. 
because uh, it is essentially uh, a jaunty score. Yeah. But uh, the zither is an instrument sort of like sort of like the accordion. Yeah. Or the bagpipe. Yeah. That can walk a very fine line between silly and fun. Yeah. And heartbreakingly sad. Yeah. Because uh, there's a there's a there's a solitary, almost whiny aspect to these types of instruments. Yeah. You know, they're they sound better solo than in a group or bagpipes maybe can they're often used in a group. <laughs> right. But uh uh and and that's sort of because it is just a series of strings and it's not there's it's not an orchestral score. It's just basically right. just a zither. Uh and it mirrors the journey of uh, of our of our character because yeah. he's uh, it's for those of you who don't know, it's based on a Graham Greene novel. So as you can guess, it's about an American in a foreign country. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, he's he's the only uh, uh, American around, or so he thinks. Right. You know what? Here's the thing. Here, you know, over the years there are a lot of things that have just been kind of ruined, and that makes it difficult to watch. But like, for example, we all pretty much know what happens to Janet Lee in Psycho, right? And that's a shame. And Everybody knows because he's on the damn cover. Uh, that yes, Orson Welles is in the Third Man. Everybody right. knows it, and you can figure out pretty like when you watch it, and you're like, "Why is he on the cover?" If uh, it's like, wh- "Where is he?" I don't see him anywhere. He must play a big role, and like, it it's just very frustrating that going in because you know when it when Orson Welles is revealed, it's a bit of a twist. Who he is and that kind yeah. of thing, and so like, and I won't re- I won't say it now, you know. Really, we can spoil. <laughs> well, Nashville's I'm, forty years old, uh, okay. or thirty five right. years old. Right. <laughs> Tur- okay, yeah, fair enough. Uh, it turns out Harry Lime is alive. This guy that we thought was dead, and I feel like, and he's he's one of the best villains ever, uh, with very limited screen time. Um, and I feel like the the jaunty score for such a kind of a dark downer movie. <laughs> yeah. I think it's meant to represent his attitude towards violent, toward, towards evil, because uh, yeah, he's well, just like brings, whatever. That brings up another thing: we don't ever really see him do anything evil. No, but we uh, hear him. He, we hear him talk about it. Yeah, and that's where the cuckoo clock. Thing yeah, that whole comes scene in. is amazing. Uh, yeah, it's it, it takes place on uh, like a Ferris, Ferris wheel, wheel type yeah. of thing. Yeah, it's just a Ferris wheel. It's not a Ferris wheel type of thing. It's a well, Ferris. it's it's a Ferris wheel, but it's a very large one. It's like a good thing closed, right? Like the like the Millennium thing in London, right? Uh, and basically, the the thesis of his speech, for those who don't know, uh, is that uh, any the the more the more violence, uh, the more darkness, uh, the more despair in a culture's history, mm-hmm. the more progress they will make, yeah. the better they will be. Yeah, the Swedish, on the other hand, yeah. had centuries of peace, and yeah. they came up with nothing better than the cuckoo clock. <laughs> and it's it's a great line, and and his whole attitude towards his what he's done with his life can be summed up in that little speech, and just that whole scene where like they're up very high on the Ferris wheel, and he looks down at the people on the on the ground, and they just like little dots, and he's like he's like, would you be bothered if one of those dots? stopped moving or would you start calculating how many dots you could afford to, to lose, you know? And it's just like, and he, j- the fact that he just says it with a big smile on his face, like, you know, Orson Welles is talked about as a director a lot. He was a really good actor when he yeah. was on, like 
you know, he could occasionally go over the top and all that. But like when he was really spot on, he could be amazing. And he really does. Yeah. He makes an impression. About him as an actor. We've talked about on the show before we talked about Citizen Kane, about how easily he, with a theater background, yeah. how easily he adapted his directing style to film. Yeah. It seems like the transition wasn't as easy with his acting. Sometimes he could be a bit theatrical. Right, right. Um, but, but this is not one of those times. No, not at Except all. Except with, with the exception of his, his cadence. Yeah. Uh, and just his delivery in general is, yeah. is theatrical, but he, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a much more subtle performance. And it's interesting; uh, it is the only performance uh, he ever did on film where he didn't wear uh, a fake nose. He <laughs> really, it, yeah. He uh, in every single movie he's ever been in, he he always hated his nose, uh-huh. uh, but he always wore a fake nose, even in Citizen Kane, where like. Even it, like he wore it in a way that didn't call attention to itself. He just didn't like his own nose, but like he just wanted to be as naturalistic as possible in the third. So man. seriously, in like the stranger, he's wearing a fake nose. Yeah. Wow. I know. He really brought a lot of his theatricality with him, but <laughs> but yeah, uh, it, it's a great performance, and it's just it, it's such an interesting movie, and it's just and I when I think of it, I think of it as just a just an inherently positive movie, but it doesn't end well. And it doesn't, you know, it's just a, it's a fascinating movie. Um, and yes, it is my number 11. Okay. So what's your number nine? Oh my gosh. Uh, my number nine is Glengarry Glen Ross. Everybody I will. loves it. Talk I, about the theater. What was that? Talking about theater. Exactly. Um, you know, and I, I, I'll take a moment to say this. Like, uh, when, I, when you take a moment to stand back, I started to say this last, last week, uh, in reference to what, uh, cuisine, um, uh-huh. I tend to respond to American movies. Now, when I say American movies, I don't just mean movies that are made in America. I mean movies that have to do with America, whether it be the American dream or just the American mindset. Um, Just movies that really could not have taken place anywhere else. Nashville's one of those, and I'd say Glengarry Glen Ross is one of those. Um, I I honestly, I think I kind of get this from my dad. My dad worked... Uh, in corporate America, he worked for an oil company, and <laughs> you know what's more American than that? Uh, and so, and so he just my dad was very cynical about corporate America, and he tended to love movies that questioned the American dream and the idea that often the most successful people are the most miserable. Um, but that's not what Glengarry Glen Ross is. That is not yeah. about successful people. It is about just the guys who have to freaking work really hard just to stay not even ahead just to keep their you know head slightly above water um and it's just it's about absolute desperation i mean you know i'm a i'm i guess i'm not registered republican anymore but you know i'm a i'm a fairly conservative person so you know there's that whole idea of like oh you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps but the fact is a lot of what happens when somebody has to pull themselves up by their bootstraps is they wind up just like these characters who are so worried about getting fired, even late in life. Like these are characters who have succeeded, especially Jack Lemon, have succeeded uh, quite a bit in their younger years, and it has bought them no credit. I mean, they are. I mean, with their employer, it's all about how you're doing now. What it also examines is that pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is really more often pulling yourself up by pushing others down. It, Absolutely. It, it examines the, the, the parasitic aspect of the American dream. Right. Because what they're salesmen, and yeah. what they're doing to these people, the, the lies that they tell and the way they leech on these people that they're trying yeah. to sell to, 
is is despicable, but it's part of it's just part of life to them. Yeah, I mean, there's not really even any malice in it. I mean, it is right. I mean, it's just something they have to do. Their loyalty towards each other only goes as far as you know. Is this person a threat to me on the big board? You know, yeah. um, and it's just a it's just it's a heartbreaking movie. And I will say this: looking at my looking at my the movies on my list, uh, I do tend to also respond to movies that are very. Uh, very masculine or about men. Now, some people have said this makes me a misogynist. Some people, myself included, would say, well, I'm a man. I may actually respond to very male themes. And, you know, and there are some movies that would be different if any of the main characters were played by, were a woman. Glengarry Glen Ross, it has to be... enough, I respond mostly to the plight of Kiwi women. Yeah, women, uh, (laughs) indigenous... (laughs) <laughs> like New Zealand okay. women that that hmm. their their life story means more to me than any American man. <laughs> that's a, that's well, a teaser. My number one movie is Well Rider. <laughs> well Rider is number one for me. Okay, that is pretty good. Um, <laughs> but no, just you know, I mean, the idea that it's just like these guys. It's all about these guys' job, and you know, men, especially men of the generation of these salesmen are defined very much by their job. And so, like, the idea of, oh, if I lose my job... I mean, a character actually says a man is his job. And so if these guys don't have a job, well, what does it mean for them as people? And so when, you know, if you are threatened with losing your very identity, you will, of course, turn to something that uh, is probably not 100% legal. And um, it's just... It's a really great movie. And, yeah, and it is a movie that was a play. And... and through James Foley's really great direction, it made a flawless transition yeah, into, actually, a, into a film. Before we move on to the next movie, I want to talk about that. I had seen this movie countless times when I was like in high school and such, and I'd seen it on VHS, Pan yeah. and Scan, and I had always thought that that was its one shortcoming, was that it, it looked stagey. Yeah. And then when I saw the DVD uh, in the in the anamorphic, yeah. it's, 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 I mean, it's not the most, it's not, you know... Bridge in the River Kwai. It's not like some gorgeous, right. you know, uh, widescreen film, but it uses it uses the, the 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 cinematic frame very well. It really does. And you know, I mean, we've talked in the past about how there are some movies that try and they try and escape their theater roots by like having one conversation take place various places. And you know, Glengarry Glen Ross does that, but not, but it does it organically. It doesn't do it in a. It finds a good place to stop the conversation. And pick it up elsewhere. Whereas, like yeah. in Hurley Burley, like characters are talking at their house, and then they're talking over their cell phones on the way to the office, and then and they work at the same office. So then they continue their conversation there. It's just like, ugh, really? Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, Glengarry Glen Ross, good stuff. Moving on, number eight, David. What do you got for me? Uh, another genre-ish film. Okay. Videodrome. Videodrome. Um, Cronenberg, for me. Every time I watch one of his films, even though I've seen it before, yeah. he grows in my estimation with every viewing of yeah. any one of his films. He uh, and, and it, it's it's maybe it's it's more apparent now in his later films because they've been more maybe a little more prestige. Yeah. Uh, but his directorial grasp is rivaled by almost no one else working in cinema today. Yeah. The, you can you can feel it, it, he he is to me. 
the best example working today of the auteur theory. Yeah. You can feel him directing every aspect of every one of his films. Right. And that is... But oddly enough, it never feels... The next, my number eight is a Kubrick film, uh-huh. and he's a guy who also you could all you always felt his firm grip on the film, but as a result, they off his films often felt kind of cold. I I never get that feeling with yeah, which is Cronenberg. Why I'm gonna I'm gonna come out and say it. And, uh, uh, Cronenberg's a better director than Kubrick mm-hmm. because he could do the things that Kubrick did with with uh, with framing and, yeah. and production design and. And, and and tone, yeah, and also be a great director of actors. He is a good actors director, yeah. Um, which I think is is I mean he's gotten I mean, with History of Violence and Eastern Promises, yeah. you know, He's gotten more recognition for that uh, because those are, I guess, meteor actory roles. Yeah. Uh, but all the way back to his, uh, I mean, stuff like Videodrome, which is, uh, you know, it's it's a kind of silly on its own terms. This this. This story, you know, of of uh, it, it's it's kind of uh, I don't know. It 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 could be a cheesy gore fest. It could be, yes, yes, yeah. And I think a lot of his his early stuff gets that rap. Yeah, you know. Um, but uh, he he directs uh, James Woods and as best as possible Debbie Harry to <laughs> fantastic performances. Yeah, I, you know, I I love Blondie, but. Uh, She's not the best actress. She's been, I mean, she's Videodrome. She was in Heavy. Uh, you know, she she can hold her own. She she doesn't ruin a film. Yeah. But. Well, and she's not, I mean, this is very much James Wood's film. I mean, it's yeah. not like they're the leads. He's the lead. She's very much supporting, I would say. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, um, I tend to not respond incredibly well to like kind of surreal things i mean if you know the movies i'm about to talk about usually are very uh rooted in reality Uh um and oddly and cronenberg he he tends to do that a lot he tends to mix reality with illusion and you never know what's real and what isn't and after a while you just have to force yourself to just accept everything and it doesn't bother me at all and videodrome is one of those where like you're like, is this really happening or what's the deal? And, yeah. and I love it. I love every frame of it. Video Durham is great. And he, he, um, there, certainly there are plenty of films, plenty of horror films and such that are gorier than his films, mm-hmm. but no director can make me queasy the way that David Cronenberg did. <sighs> My gosh. You know, I mean, when you think of how many moments there are of sheer horror in like the fly, there's not many, Yeah, but I'd say you're much more likely to throw up <laughs> yeah. watching that. You know, I mean, he really has a biology has always been a firm, uh, you know, a big theme in his films, especially when it mixes with technology, which of course is uh, what video drums all about. Yeah. Also existence existence. Which, yeah. Which has the, because they have those ports in the base of their spine Yeah, and the one, uh, his port is dry and she, is it his port is dry and she has to get down and and like lick that opening in, in his back i don't remember or is i can't remember the characters are switched there but yeah uh, yeah it's someone basically sticking their tongue into an opening that's at the base of your spine it's so gross yeah well and then like and then of course james woods uh has a very vaginal looking opening in his chest in videodrome and uh people put uh videotapes into it yeah because <laughs> why not you know, uh, 
you've got to see it. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I'll say this about the movies on your list. I, I mean, I guess mine as well, but the movies on your list, they do not fade from memory even if you try. <laughs> like, even if you're like, I got to get funny games out of my head. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. And here comes Videodrome right behind it. All right, number eight for you. Number eight for me, um, you know, David, I feel kind of bummed out. Like, I've said this before. My tastes are perhaps a bit more mainstream. So, like, all the movies on my uh, list... Don't keep apologizing. I, I know, I just... I feel bad because none of the movies on my list are going to be a big surprise. No one's going to be like, really? So my number eight is Dr. Strangelove. Sure. Or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Um, <laughs> Whichever you prefer. Yeah. It's, nobody ever said, you know, it says or. Right. Nobody, nobody ever, ever goes with that other, other one. It's, they either <laughs> say the one or they say both of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, as I have said, uh, Kubrick, is he's a very good director. He, I'd say he's a great director. But... Um, I think this is probably the only film of his, uh, even in my top hundred. Um, let me rethink. I do like Paths of Glory quite a bit, but anyway, um, but yeah, Doctor Strangelove is just—it's a movie that I watched it right. I watched it when I was about fourteen. I watched it basically when I knew nothing about certain movies. I only knew that oh, this is people kind of like it, uh-huh. and so I pick up Doctor Strangelove not knowing. Not knowing at all what to expect. Uh-huh. I was so happy that I watched it like that. Because, yeah. holy, how do you prepare for that movie? Like, I cert- I didn't expect it to be a comedy. And I think that helped, too. Yeah. Because I found myself chuckling, and I wasn't sure if I should let myself chuckle. And then, r- roughly, right because I, I knew George C. Scott was in it, but I only knew him as a, as a dramatic actor. Uh-huh. And I had not seen... Peter Sellers before I hadn't seen Pink Panther at the time and so it's just a movie that is so ridiculous and but what's good about it is that the ridiculousness this is where the satiric elements come the ridiculousness is basically just taking something that already exists and heightening it not even a lot yeah to a slight degree I mean Kubrick I think said that he wanted to make a movie that was like fail safe and he wanted to make a dramatic movie, but the more he saw how silly this whole thing was, the more he's like, "I'm, you know what? I'm just gonna go that route with it." And, uh, and thank God he did. It's it's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, and we've you know, and and we've talked about this uh, several episodes ago that Peter Sellers certainly is great, and George, but George C. Scott is the unsung hero of Doctor Strangelove because yeah. if there's anybody that represents. The ridi- you know, because I mean, the character of Doctor Strangelove is just so outlandish that it's like okay. But I mean, if you just want to point to a character that is the embodiment of the satire of Doctor Strangelove, you've right. got Buck Turgeson right there. But you know, actually, I think the role that makes me laugh the most, almost because it's so, it's committed to the point where I almost like wonder if he gets the joke. Is oh, Sterling Hayden? Sterling Hayden, yeah. You know, it's one of those things. Yeah, you wonder if. You're like, wow, you wouldn't think this guy would be in on it. Uh, yeah. But how could he not? He's talking about precious bodily fluids through like a cigar that must be a foot and a half long. Yeah. Um, it's just like, how could who couldn't be in on that joke? But you know what? And that's the and I think that's, you know, a testament to his amazing performance that uh, you don't completely know whether he yeah. be- is into it or not. But yeah. 
I won't talk much more about it because it's just, you know, it's uh, at this point, I'm sure everybody listening has seen it, but I just, I love it so much. All right. Well, let's go to my number seven. Okay. Uh, keeping in, in, in w- keeping with comedies. Yeah. My number seven favorite film of all time is, and talking about American movies. There you go. Uh, the Philadelphia Story. Yep. It's a pure product of the studio system, 1940. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was a. It was a factory over there at that at that time. Yeah, uh, and this was uh, directed by um, George Cukor. Yep, uh, and uh, based on a play, it was a, much like Glenn Gary Gunnar, exactly like Glenn Gary Gunnar. <laughs> the, In the sense plays. that it's based on yeah. a play. Um, <laughs> it was a play that uh, at this point. A little backstory: Catherine Hepburn was considered box office poison at this point in her career. Yeah, and she had herself optioned the rights to the play and had uh, i'm not a great historian on this but she'd had some trouble getting it made and right. eventually she and george kukor i don't know if i'm saying his name right uh teamed up and and, and it's uh <laughs> i don't know what to say um it's it's a weird it's it's an odd movie to to talk about because it's just when when discussing it, you can just point to every element and just be like, "Yeah, that's great," and that's great too. And over here, that's great. Yeah, but it it doesn't seem at first at first glance it doesn't seem like uh, I don't know an art film. It doesn't seem like a very artistic right, film right. at all. It, yeah. it, it seems like so much other stuff from its time. Yeah, you know, um, it's got uh, snappy dialogue. Yeah, uh, some of the best. Like absolutely. Seriously, I mean this. Uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, this is up there with it happened one night uh, yeah. for me as far as far as just just one liners and 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 uh, retorts and yeah. just wonderfully written dialogue, wonderfully delivered, even if it is a little bit theatrical in in its in its delivery. But you know that, and I think that's the key is it is theatrical, but it's about people that are theatrical. I mean, it's about incredibly rich, spoiled people. Yeah. And you don't find a lot of restraint in people like that. You know, you will find people who just are grand and very pleased with themselves and, you know, yeah. and not, I don't mean this in real life, of course, but just in movies, especially movies that are based on plays, you will find it just, you buy it because it seems organic, you know? Like if you saw big sweeping gestures and all this, you know, way too clever dialogue coming out of Ed Harris and Glengarry Glen Ross wouldn't really work. Right. But coming out of coming out of, you know, Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, sure, yeah. it fits completely. Um and it, it, just a couple of other elements of it I want to talk about. I've talked before, I think, about how it's my favorite uh, Jimmy Stewart role. Right. Because uh the temptation is there for him to be the sort of Frank Capra, Jimmy Stewart that right. people in 1940 knew him as. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, he is. But there's an undercurrent yeah. of real cynicism. Yeah. Like, not the sort of charismatic, uh, you know, cool movie hero cynicism. Yeah. Like, the cynicism that will melt away when he finds true love. Right. Like, this guy's a real cynic. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, you know, he really is an in- intelligent person. Yeah. Uh, and a very individualistic person, uh, and there's there's a lot more of that actually in the film than you than you would expect too. The the individualism, mm. um, uh, that the character every character is so fully realized 
you know, even the small characters, especially I want to talk about uh, the character, Catherine Hepburn's father, mm-hmm. um, who he doesn't show up until late in the film. Uh, I'm maybe about halfway through, right? Uh, I'd say rough, a little over halfway, I'd say. Yeah. Um, and now this is the time of the Hayes Code. Uh, I imagine people who listen to this podcast know what that is. If you're not, yeah. look it up. Um, and he plays a cheating husband. Yeah. And he's not let off the hook for it, but he is allowed to be sympathetic. Yeah, right. In, in, in a way that seems... That's that's very mature, given uh, Joseph Breen and the Hayes Code, right? But of course, it's very smart. And uh, I mean, I never, obviously, I never met Joseph Breen, right? Uh, but based on what got past him, it seemed like if you were a little, a little bit subtle, you could get any pa- anything past him. I don't think yeah. he was that. I don't think I think he was kind of stupid. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's just a very. I mean, it's it's a classy movie. I mean, it's just. It's fun to watch these people. It's fun to watch them go back and forth and it's just it's just so incredibly smart and you know the more and I'll say this about Jimmy Stewart. Watching the movies that I watched uh when I was just getting into classic film, you know, you do get an an image of Jimmy Stewart which is, you know, Mr. Smith um uh and well, I never saw. I still haven't seen uh, It's a Wonderful Life. But just the, as you say, the Capra, you know, just the really nice guy right. who just can't hide his niceness. Harvey. But Harvey. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but you know, the great more, film though, Harvey. Oh, absolutely. I, I was in the play, um, but uh, I didn't play that. <laughs> Not character. the original production. <laughs> no. Um, but uh, the excuse me. The um, but what fascinates me is that he really did from even a fairly early age. I mean, that was nineteen forty. He really worked against his image frequently. Like yeah. he did that. I mean, he was in. I mean, almost any Hitchcock thing that he was in, and then he was in Anatomy of a Murder. Like he was a. I, I'd like to someday profile him, but I. Yeah, well, I feel I need it, to see more of his films. There's a very definite uh, pre World War II and post World War II break in his yeah. his style. And yeah. Philadelphia Story is 1940, but it's a hint at what was to come. Right. Right. Um, so uh, let's move on. Your, okay. Your number seven. My number seven is uh, the Maltese Falcon. That's a good one. It is. <laughs> I've seen that movie. That's good. <laughs> I agree. Moving on. Um, I read that book, too. I did, too. Yes. Well, um, you've read, like, everything Dashiell Hammond wrote? Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes, I have. Um, you know and I want to read is Red Harvest. Red Harvest is my favorite of his books. Okay. And I will lend it to you someday. Uh, listeners, I will not lend it to you, but... Go out and read Red Harvest. It's a lot of fun. And here's what you can do. You can read Red Harvest and The Glass Key, watch Miller's Crossing, and then marvel at the fact that the Coens didn't get sued. Um, so you know about, you know, Kurosawa made that film Yojimbo. Yeah. And then Leone made A Fistful of Dollars. Right. Kurosawa sued Leone, <laughs> and he won, but Leone's defense was, hey, we both stole this from Red Harvest. Right. Yeah. <laughs> huh. I didn't know that. That's pretty awesome. Um, but uh, anyway, so yeah, Maltese so Falcon. Yeah, Red Harvest is your number seven. <laughs> Red Harvest. You know, it's never been made into a film. But it seems like it has in various... Exactly, yeah. But um, Yeah, Maltese Falcon. Maltese Falcon. It is the first... Sydney mo- Green Street. <laughs> He's great in it. Um, it, it Maltese is- Falcon starring Sydney Green Street. That's all you need to know. Yeah. And Humphrey Bogart as Sam Spade. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
He's a featured player. Sydney Greenstreet, Peter Lorre, Elisha Cook Jr., Ward Bond, the Maltese Falcon. Um, but uh, anyway, so Maltese Falcon was the first movie I saw made before 1960. Um, it was the movie that I don't know. I, you know, it's one of those things I never I don't remember where I first heard of it. But it sounded fascinating to me, and I do remember at the time liking what I had seen of Peter Lorre, which was not much. But so I'm, so I'm hung up on that. Okay, you hadn't seen The Wizard of Oz? No, I mean I had seen the kind of thing that you see when you're a kid, okay. you know, Wizard of Oz, and you know, some you Disney films. With your blanket statements like that. Well, uh, sorry, this is why I don't. Ma- this is why I never say anything definitively. All right, <laughs> yeah. like. It, because I get in trouble because there's always some jackass that I happen to be co-hosting a podcast with who's just like, aha, what do you think of this, friend yeah. that I'll never let off the hook? That um, always happens. But uh, anyway, so, um, but like, it just, it blew my mind. I mean, it just, it had such colorful characters and it just, and it had, you know, speaking of snappy dialogue, and it had true cynicism in Sam Spade. I mean, there's a hint of idealism there, but... yeah. The, you get the hint. You get the idea that the character just he put that in a deep dark place a long time ago because it's not it's not doing him any favors. Well, speaking of the Hayes Code, having read the book, that hint of idealism seems to be more a product of the Hayes Code because it's not. Uh, uh, yeah, in, in the book, he's pretty much just yeah, just yeah, a cynic. Um, but you know, and the and what they do with it, I mean, it's not the most hopeful. It's, yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, and it's just it, great performances all around. I mean, you mentioned Sidney Greenstreet. He really is amazing. I mean, he, I say he's one of the best villains out there because he smile. I mean, he smiles at you even though he – and you know that, oh, he'll kill you. He, he will order your death uh, at a moment's notice if he if you stand in his way. But That's he'll why smile bad at guys you now. make good villains. Okay. Because <laughs> – if it's a, if it's a big like well, a, like a built tough guy, yeah. you know that he's going to have to work to do some evil. <laughs> a fat guy who's evil, you know he he can have people do it for him. Exactly. It's, you know he's more powerful because he can just sit there in his chair with his cane. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but th- that's but he may not always smile at you know. I mean, another notable thing in the book, Casper Gutman gets shot and killed. He does not get killed in the movie, and. In you know in the book it happens off screen or off page or whatever you want to say um, it's not described or depicted and so it's like they could have done that in the movie well, well why didn't they and it's because he's so damn likable this guy is responsible for many people's deaths but uh-huh. he's so damn likable that I feel like people would be upset if he died I know <laughs> I was upset when I read it in the book um, but like and he's just one of the many I mean Peter Laurie's in it and it's and he's great in it and he's comical and. I'd say the Hayes Code, speaking of which, mostly comes into play when it's like, okay, how do we dance around the fact that Joel Cairo is an obvious homosexual? <laughs> um, but uh, and again, with subtlety, because yeah, I think to any thinking adult who saw that film when it, what is it forty one forty one forty one. Uh, they got that he was gay. Yeah. Basically, just the fact that his business card smelled, smelled like perfume. That yeah. was the only thing that they had to say. Exactly. In the uh, in the book, his uh, Spade secretary comes in with his card and hands it to Spade and just goes, this guy's queer. It actually <laughs> says that in the book. Yeah. Whereas, of course, in the, uh, in the movie, he hands him the card, Spade smells it, and she's like, it's gardenia. And he's just <laughs> like, he's like, oh, better bring him in. Um, and it's just... It's just such a just such a great movie, and it's just so 
memorable and it's just got you know i mean i can't even it, it's so great that it over overwhelms me and we've got to move on david number six what do you got for me uh lawrence of arabia lawrence of arabia talk about not a surprise uh, well, it, that's, fair enough. it's so not surprising that I'm surprised it's not on your list. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, but no, uh, talking about you were talking about Nashville about 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 movies that that mean different things to you whenever yeah. you watch them. Lawrence Arabia is so like that. You know, the first time you see it, especially if you were uh, younger, maybe less mature as a as a film watcher, you are marveling pretty much surely as at its epicness and, yeah. its, and its beauty. Yeah. Uh, which is fine. I mean, yeah, uh, it's a movie that is—it's so big and so deep that it needs multiple viewings to be fully Absolutely. understood. Uh, once, once you get to to rewatching it a couple times, and and you can can sort of take that beauty for granted. Yeah, um, you see a lot of other deeper and darker things yeah. going on thematically and, and character-wise, and. Uh, Speaking of homosexuals, there's uh, there's a strong homoerotic subtext to yeah. Lawrence of Arabia uh, that is, I think, kind of uh, commendable in its uh, in its maturity. Yeah, and David Lean was straight. <laughs> yes, very straight. But didn't we have this conversation? <laughs> we did before? have this conversation when we profiled been married David so many Lean. Times that maybe it was because he wasn't straight. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, there was. You know, there was definitely that, and it's just, and some people would say like, "Oh, well, maybe, maybe Lawrence was a, such a mystery to everybody because you know he just was very inward, and he refused to let anybody in because he's got this big secret and all that." I mean, I've heard that that take on it, but it's just, and that, but that's to the movie's credit, that's one of the many complex aspects about this character. Yeah. Um. Um. The other thing is the. In in a, in a movie that's an epic, you usually have a hero. Yeah, and he is uh, Lawrence is an is an antihero. Yeah, but not in the way that you tend to think of that word. Not in like the Sam Spade right type of way. Um, it's it's much more ambiguous than that. He's not just he's not just a, 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 a an hero because he makes negative wisecracks right. or whatever. His motivation for being a hero is questionable. It's, right, he's, it's not, he's even, not just out to save these people just out of the goodness of his heart. Nor he's is he to, out for his own personal glory. Like exactly, like going either way with that would have been too simple. Like you literally don't know why he's doing any of this. Yeah, it seems like uh, a lot of it just seems to really have to do with his hatred for his homeland. Yeah, and 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 the and the uh, the machine, the, the the culture, the system that he comes from. And an, that's what. And then another part is maybe he's just bored. He just seems bored. Yeah. Like when but he it's, talks. No, about, I want to go back because it's it, it, it's almost like like a like a high school kid who decides, uh, "Fuck you, mom and dad. I'm a Buddhist now." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I mean, there is that, and it's just you know. And then like, uh, and then he gets, and then frankly, when he gets sick of his uh, Buddhist phase, he's like, "Hey, motorcycles," you know, <laughs> you know yeah. quite literally, you know. And it's just. And he's just such he's a hard character to get behind because how could how could you get behind that? Yeah. Um and that's the beauty of the way that David Lean made films, because when you make a film that 
films that cost as much money as his films did. Right. His epic films. I mean, he made earlier films. He's known mostly for his epics, yeah. which is not necessarily fair. But um, uh, when, you, when you make films that cost that much money, at least now, or in, in the way that most of those are made, there's pressure, I think, to not do the type of things that he did with character. Right. But he uh, got his money from a lot of different sources. He, you know, he, uh, basically, he wasn't just making it for a studio. Right. You know, it's sort of like what Oliver Stone tried to do with Alexander, is (laughs) make an $80 million film without a studio breathing down your neck. Right. Uh, David Lean did it well. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just, the choices he makes, like, you know, it's not a it's not an unusual thing to make a, a a biopic where it starts with the character's death. But when you see that his death, he's alone. He's he crashes a motorcycle. That's it. That's how yeah. he dies. And then you go on to see the huge life that he that he led. You're just like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, kind of how did he live through all this only to die alone uh, in a motorcycle By accident? accident. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's an it's an amazing film and and one with such a strong central performance. I mean, it's a good example of like I mean, and Peter O'Toole just does an amazing job because how hard must that have been to play a character? I mean, the movie's the movie is on his shoulders most of, you know, most of the time. Yeah. And all 2 hours and 45 right. minutes of it or however long it is. 3:15, I believe. 3:15? Yeah, or at least that's what it is on DVD cuz I know they added more things into the oh, DVD. Okay. But um but like how hard must that have been when you're not given much as far as motivation and stuff? Like, I can't imagine I how hard to, that must have been. To an actor as smart as Peter Toole, I think he's given plenty. It's just not well, yeah, yeah. for him. Exactly. Yeah. You know. Um, all right. But, your numbers. We got to. Oh, man. We got to move on. Oh, okay. All right. Your so, number six, and then we'll break for part two yeah. of this episode. You want to know my number six, David? I do. Well, you can forget it. It's Chinatown. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um,. <laughs> Damn, I was, I was going. Is it Rashomon? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, Chinatown um, is the second film noir on my uh, top ten. Uh, there is one more to go. Some could say two. <laughs> and um, yeah, Chinatown is. Just, I mean, we've talked about uh, Chinatown before, but it's just that's the movie that uh, it was. My dad introduced it to me because I had seen um, I had seen LA Confidential, and my dad said, "Oh, if you like that." you know what you'll love? You'll love Chinatown. So I watched it and that's a movie that just really, it just sneaks up on you so much because I just, you don't really know what you're getting. I mean, it start like, like any good film noir. I mean, it starts out leading you one direction and then it stops completely when you find out, Oh, that per that character is now dead. Okay. Where are we going now? Uh-huh. Oh, we're going this way up. Oh, no, that person's dead too. <laughs> and just, you know, and like the idea of, just reality constantly changing uh, for the main character. And he literally doesn't know who to trust, you know? Um, And, and it's just such a great movie about just grief and not, not necessarily grief, but regret and just something in your past and that it's just always there with you. I mean, people have commented like, why is this movie called Chinatown? Like, well, first off the climax takes place in Chinatown, but also, Chinatown is just this huge thing that Jack Nicholson's character just carries around with him of things, bad things that he has done Uh and things that were done to him. And it's just, 
And like, and as he finds himself getting more and more drawn into this thing that is this story that's getting worse and worse and worse, it's only natural that he will have to go back to this place where n- nothing good happens. And here's one more thing. Um, and it's just a... It's not just one more thing. It's Well, it's one... It's, yeah, yeah, it's a very... Yeah, this might win as far <laughs> as his bad China, uh, Chinatown memories, but... Um, and of course, and just great performances by Nicholson and Faye Dunaway, and uh, and of course John Houston, who I think who his character in Chinatown is, I think the worst villain ever. <laughs> worst in the sense of best. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, yeah. Before we sign off, I want to talk about this uh, film in, in relation to. Well, there's a film that I've probably mentioned in the podcast before, maybe not. It's called Los Angeles Plays Itself. Oh yeah. Uh, it's a very long documentary. It even has an intermission. That's hmm. about, uh, and it, it was made just a few years ago, and it's about um, the ways that Los Angeles is portrayed on film. Right. Now, don't run to your Netflix now, because it is not, and probably never will be available on DVD, because it contains many, many clips of films that they don't have the DVD rights to, oh, and are way that's too unfortunate. to do. But if you, I mean, uh, here in Los Angeles, they, uh, the American Cinematheque or somebody will screen it, uh, uh, every once in a while it's been a while since i've done it um and uh i've really uh i really love los angeles i've lived here yeah. about two and a half years now and i've really come to adopt it uh, you know as as a as a hometown and that this movie uh speaks to me in a different way now than it did then and right uh i remember the the funniest thing that is in los angeles plays itself about about chinatown is uh the the director the narrator he says that uh, uh, Chinatown illustrates very well how difficult it is to get around Los Angeles without a car <laughs> <laughs> because that's I mean like the second half of the film he doesn't have a car yeah and he has to go to ridiculous lengths <laughs> you know to, to to get to get around around the city and I think uh, I think Big Lebowski owes a big debt to Chinatown too it's another oh, yeah. detective story in Los Angeles where the guy loses his car halfway through <laughs> um. Yeah, it's, you know, and and the fact that it's just all this nefarious... I mean, we talked about this when we talked about uh, John Alonzo. The fact that it's a very dark story, as far as film noir goes, I mean, it's got some of the darkest stuff. And yet, the vast majority of it takes place in the daylight. Yeah. And it, it just, it's rooted so much in reality that, I mean, when you talk about the trappings of the film noir genre... Chinatown doesn't instantly jump out because it doesn't have all the crazy shadows. It doesn't, even though yeah. there's a nice little joke at the beginning where he talks about how his Venetian blinds have just been installed, uh, <laughs> but you never get the cool Venetian blind shot. You know, yeah. um, it doesn't. Bec- I mean, the biggest thing that happens at night is, of course, uh, the climax at the right. end. So that's my right, number so. six. Uh, we'll see you for fifty-two B, and we'll 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 take it from there. All right, bye bye. bye.